Coming soon to a city near you, Vinitaly Roadshow. Have you ever wondered how to attend Vinitaly for free? Are you a wine trade professional interested in a sponsored trip to Vinitaly International Academy or Vinitaly, the wine and spirits exhibition? Coming soon to Princeton, New Jersey, Harlem, New York, and Chinatown in New York City, Cardiff in Wales, London in England, and Roost in Austria. We'll be giving away our new textbook, Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0. Find out more about these exciting events and for details on how to attend, go to liveshop.vinitaly.com. Limited spots available. Sign up now. We'll see you soon. Welcome to Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. I'm delighted to announce an important collaboration with Academy de Van Library, one of the world's most important wine book publishers, whose authors are amongst the most influential and entertaining in the world of wine writing today. These are writers who I've long admired, so it will be fascinating to chat with them and hear their stories. I hope you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today I'm delighted to continue our new sub-series in collaboration with Academy Devan Library, one of the world's leading wine book publishers, and the publisher of two wonderful books by my illustrious guest, who I consider to be one of the world's greatest wine writers, who has inspired many, myself included, and who has brought the joy of wine the appreciation of wine, the culture of wine, to countless people around the world. Welcome, Hugh Johnson. It's a great pleasure to meet you here. How are you today? I'm fine, Mark, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Well, I feel as if I've been in your company over many, many years through your books. I'd like to actually begin. uh, In your book, The Life and Wines of Hugh Johnson, published by Academy Devan Library earlier this year, you describe how you came to be interested in wine. Can you please tell us about this, as you call it, Damascene moment? <laughs> it goes back to college days uh, when I was at, at Cambridge University, and um, I shared rooms with a guy who was already steeped in wine and belonged to one of these smart dining clubs. And uh, one evening I was in, in uh, our shared room pretending to write an essay or something. And uh, he came in quite jolly after a dinner party, wearing a dinner jacket, and he had two glasses of wine. And he said, Hugh, I want you to taste these. And I looked rather surprised, and I did. And I picked up one and then the other. They were both red wine. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, this one is just amazing. The other one, I don't, there's nothing special. He said, that's interesting because they come from about 100 yards apart somewhere in Burgundy. And I'm, he said, I'm just fascinated in what difference the the location, the soil, the difference between one vineyard and another can make. And I said, well, yeah, I see. That's extraordinary. And he said, this one is worth 25 times as much as the other one. And it became more and more interesting. And in the end, that sort of theme led to my writing well, that was wine. That's absolutely fascinating. That actual taste of terroir that in two identical looking glasses of wine, 
it, it opened up a whole new world for you. It did, indeed. So, Hugh, we're going back some 60 years. The world of wine and the people who drank and enjoyed wine were both very different then. Oh, yes. I mean, it was, it was quite exclusive, to use a fashionable word, really. It wasn't the people's drink. And I'm just talking about, about Britain. It was, it was a class matter, as <laughs> most things are in this country. You know, the upper classes drank wine, knew about wine, and the rest didn't. Well, it's not quite true, because in pubs, port was always very popular. Strong wine was what the people wanted, and table wine was not interesting. But it, you know, it's not just in this country. I mean, if you look, for example, at Australia, nearly all Australian wine was classified as either port or sherry, which, of course, it had no right to the names. And uh, the idea of table wine was definitely a niche subject. Well, all that has changed, hasn't it? Oh, completely. Uh, partly uh, through uh, the work you've done. I mean, you began writing about wine in this very different time and world. Was one of your aims to popularize wine? Oh, yes. Or to use the word the French use, which, I, which I'm very happy to use, to vulgarize it. <laughs> I guess uh, not only was wine not a drink of the people, the world of wine, certainly here in the UK, was much, much smaller than it is today. Uh, for example, Claret, Burgundy, Vintage Port, Champagne, the wines of the Rhone and the great wines of Germany, oh, not forgetting Champagne, were probably the mainstays. That's all changed completely now, hasn't it? Well, not only at the consuming end, at the production end, too. You've got to remember that in the last past half century, the entire wine world of California, Australia, South America, everywhere has just grown astonishingly and, of course, upped its, upped its game even more astonishingly. So we were talking about a much, much more limited supply, not just uh, the consuming it. Yes, absolutely. In fact, it's very interesting. My uh, first copy of your wine atlas, I think, was published in 1978. And it's very interesting. I, it's it's well worn. The binding is broken. It was our literal roadmap uh, when we were researching our books of our first book, which came out in 1982, uh, the wine and food of Europe. And so that that atlas has now grown considerably, and the world of wine. In the first edition, which was actually 1971, there was no map of New Zealand. Fascinating. Well, there was, there was a, t a sort of footnote with a little sketch showing where New Zealand is and saying, look out, there might be wine one day from here. So it's a long period of time. Yeah, it is, and, and, and massive, massive changes. So interesting. Hugh, how do you think the UK changed from being wine, being a drink for the elite, to a beverage of every man, every woman? Well, it, it's part a question of disposable income, but it's also hugely a question of travel and people going abroad on their holidays and awareness of abroad. I mean, you know, we were an island race and um, the idea of even crossing the English Channel was a step too far for most people. So our whole mindset has just altered utterly and we have become far more interested in food. I mean, English food used to be a bad joke and then in the 60s, really, 50s, 60s, we were led into the sunlit uplands of <laughs> foreign food, largely by uh, Elizabeth David, cookery writer, great writer in all ways, who became a very good friend of mine and my wife's. 
and I credit her with an enormous expansion of interest and and, an increasing quality in in the way the the British eat. Yes, actually, I remember those really influential books, French country cooking and Italian cooking as well. And coming at the time as well that, as you say, Hugh, when people were beginning to travel abroad, package travel was introduced for the first time and people discovered sunshine and wine and different flavors. But I think a great deal of credit also goes to to you and to other great wine communicators, some of whom are also published by Academy Devan Library, whom I will be talking with over the coming weeks. But I would say that for me, most importantly, what your writing has been able to do is to entrance people with the sheer magic of wine. Would you say that's fair to say that the magic, the romance, the sheer beauty of wine is what most attracted you and still attracts you today. I would. I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, so many wine books are published that say this book finally removes the mystique of wine, as though that was something that got in the way. Actually, that's just what people like. So I, I'm not for removing mystique. I am for explaining clearly why wines are different and why I prefer one to the other. and, and and going on to be to enthuse about it to the degree that it helps them appreciate and not sort of talk a lot of gobbledygook or use very highfalutin language, which I try to avoid. Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. Yes, I, I think that's right. I think it's your writing. It's so clear that, that people can really understand and begin to feel flavors and, and, and want to taste them. Uh, that moment you talk about uh, between tasting a, a Burgundy from one side of the road to a Grand Cru on, on the other is, uh, is an example of that. In Life and Wines of Hugh Johnson, the book is organized into sections such as bubbly, white, red, sweet and digestif, allowing you to highlight favorite wines and recall pivotal wine-tasting moments. I'd like to give our listeners a flavor of your wine experiences and your writing just by reading a short passage on tasting Californian wines. This is uh, from uh, page 232. I've tasted first-attempt Chardonnays that were like Dizzy Gillespie solos all over the place and the color of his trumpet, too. On the other hand, a Stony Hill Chardonnay recently had the subtle harmonies and lilting vitality of Bix Biederbeck. Robert Mondavi's reserve cabernets are Duke Ellington numbers, mass talent in full cry. Benny Goodman is a Riesling from Joseph Phelps. Louis Martini's wines have the charm and good manners of Glenn Miller. Joe Heights, though, Surely Armstrong at the Sunset Cafe, virtuoso, perverse, and glorious. I mean, that's just a beautiful, wonderful way to describe wines in a way that goes beyond dry tasting notes. And I think that's really your approach to drawing people into wine. Well, that was fine for people who were into jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure. I guess I guess there's a vocabulary that reaches everybody. Have your own tastes. Reading reading that piece. Have your own tastes 
in wine as the world of wine, as we've discussed, evolved and changed so much over these years? Have your own tastes changed? Well, <laughs> sadly not, really. I mean, uh, everything evolves, and but my favorites, what I call my default wines that I just reach for without a great deal of thought, have remained pretty much the same. And um, they are the classics, I'm afraid. I'm always keen to learn. I mean, all, all the time I'm learning. Last night I had a, an Australian Cabernet Sauvignon that was a, a real eye-opener, and I finished the bottle and uh, regretting it this morning. <laughs> now, I'm always keen to learn and um, always return to base. My default white wine is Chablis, and I don't know why it is, but the, the, the Chardonnay grape, in that northern part of, of Burgundy, produces a wine with a, I would call it a magic of its own. It's not very pronounced. It's not very obvious. It's just infinitely good to drink. And that really is what we're looking for. Yes, of course. I think that's what we're all looking for. Now, Hugh, we discussed briefly how the world of wine has changed immensely over these past decades, and nowhere more so than in a country like Italy, which paradoxically is one of the world's oldest wine-producing countries, yet also at this moment one of its most exciting. Tell me about your, your love for Italian wines and how this has evolved over the years and decades. Yes, well, I think we're all learning uh, hugely about Italian wine. When I say we all, that includes the Italians. <laughs> yes. You've got to Think of Italy not really as one country, but a, a whole clutch of cultures. It has only been one country since the late 1800s. It's a series of provinces, principalities, dukedoms, you know, little states, which had their own mysteries, traditions, and, of course, terroirs. So the Italian wine system, which is was became official in the 19 early 70s, I think, Denominazione d'Origine Controllato, DOC, is almost, well, it's not new, but to most Italians it is uh, it's very official and not exactly, doesn't exactly correspond with the action on the ground. Yes, that's that, that does make it confusing, especially when uh, in the 70s, for example, some of the best wines being produced chose to go outside of that system, uh, such as Tignanello or Sassicaia. They didn't want their methods to be defined by the government. They would make the best wine they could and give it their own name. And if it fell outside one of the official groups or sectors, too bad. And so the, the table wines without official names, have a sort of absurd snob value of their own. Yes, the super vini da tavola, that uh, yes. was something of an absurdity, the lowest official classification for the for the best, some of the best and most expensive wines. Indeed. Well, price tells you a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and I guess uh, that was a defining era because I think uh, since the 70s, uh, the systems have realized that and uh, more and more really exciting wines are being produced as IGTs as well as the DOCs. Yes, yes. Now, Hugh, the story of wine is one of my favorite books of yours. And I think the Academy Divan Library edition published in 2020 is a really beautifully produced edition. I have various other editions over the years, uh, but this one I will treasure. I, I like the feel of it, the binding. 
But above all, I I love this book. It's an important work. And in this, you tell the story of wine from Noah to now. And it really demonstrates, I think, how wine is more, so much more than a product. It's you're cataloging how wine is not just something that we drink, but it's part of our very civilization, our very humanity. Do you think wine is unique in all man's edible, drinkable creations and having such a rich place in our culture, in our history? And why? Well, yes, I think it is unique uh, in being both a food and a drug at the same time, having become over time almost universal. No, it isn't universal. I mean, one of the themes that interested me most when I was writing that book was the people who don't drink wine, i.e. the story of prohibition um, above all the Muslims and the the, um, the Quran and the reasons for the banning of wine by the Prophet, you know, whether in fact it's even true that he banned wine because Islam has gone through all sorts of periods of more or less prohibition, in some cases of actually encouraging wine drinking. So the, the whole philosophy of that interested me very much indeed. And other aspects of you know, the worship of wine, going back way, way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, when wine was also a god. The things that tells you about the human race and human psychology and human needs for stimulus and for escape. It's not just a, it's not just the difference between Bordeaux and Burgundy, is it? No, absolutely not. That's what I love about the book. You're bringing in ancient myth, religion, history, science, art, and everything that encompasses our civilization itself. I mean, do you think civilization would have been evolved in the way it has without wine? Well, no, not not really. I mean, it's impossible to think of of (laughs) evolving in a different way, but um, there's no denying that wine has played a very large part in the way that Western civilization has evolved. Absolutely. Well, let's consider briefly the the future of wine. You write in the story of wine about the risk of wines becoming less varied, not more, as producers are rushing to plant familiar grape varieties that consumers have come to love, perhaps based on those classic wines of the world that, that were part of your early wine world when we had a more limited world, Cabernet Sauvignon to imitate the great wines of Bordeaux. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from Burgundy, Syrah and Viognier from the Rhone, or Sauvignon Blanc from Sancerre, Rieslings from the Mosul. But in a strange way, we're returning to that more limited palate as as great varieties replace terroir in a consumer's mind. Is that something that you think is a risk that we're moving towards? Well, in a way, Mark, that's actually happened already. You know, that we've got beyond that stage, haven't we? There was a moment in the 1950s, really, when the whole idea of naming the grape variety on the label was was new. In fact, it was really started by an American writer that I knew and loved called Frank Schoonmaker. Oh, yes, I remember his books. He was consultant to a winery called Almaden in central California, and uh, he was the first person to put on the back label what you just quoted, Cabernet Sauvignon of the great wines of Bordeaux and so on. And uh, people were astonished by that. 
uh, now it's gone way through all that, and we've had wines promoted on the basis that they are first and foremost a Cabernet or a Chardonnay, and then after that, where they come from. And that was a very, um, very useful and necessary stage in the introduction of new uh, grape-growing regions to the world, because you didn't taste a wine at that stage because it was came from Argentina, but because it was a Cabernet Sauvignon. And then you learned about Argentina. So the developments have worked in both directions. Now we're getting new and unfamiliar grape varieties, and just the fact that it's a cab is no longer enough. I mean, I just am tasting at the moment a, a, a Spanish wine from a grape variety that I'd simply never heard of in my life, and you'll find it quite hard to look up. And it's called Trepat, T-R-E-P-A-T. And it comes from a region in central northern Spain, Castile. And it's a very exciting new taste and style of wine. Now, it's, it's such good news to me that this can still happen. We think we, <laughs> think we know a lot about wine and then novelties turn up. We hope you've enjoyed this special sub-series in collaboration with Academy Devan Library. If you visit their website, academydevanlibrary.com, they are offering a discount of £5 on the purchase of books by the authors we've interviewed, including Oz Clark, Hugh Johnson, Fiona Morrison, Peter Vinding Deers, and Andrew Jefford. Just use the ADVL coupon code upon checkout with the code ITALIANWINE. That's all caps. Yes, absolutely. I've never heard of that one myself. And actually, Hugh, another thing to consider, I guess, is how climate change will be affecting grape growing and wines. I mean, the the Bordeaux producers are actually adding new permitted grape varieties into the region out of necessity, and that's happening in other regions as well. Do you see that happening more and more? Oh, undoubtedly, yes. I think people have rather exaggerated how Bordeaux has changed. I mean, with the warmer climate and the, the greater chance of good weather at vintage time, the we're getting better wines, simply that. Not better in a different way, but better in the same way. Remember that a great vintage was a warm vintage, and now we're getting warmer vintages, so we're getting warmer wine, better wine. There are regions where the change, I mean, take Germany, which was really, a good vintage in Germany was a rarity, really, to get Riesling really ripe. Now, almost take take it as red. So the greatest wine regions have always been on the margin, where ripeness was a possibility, but not a certainty. Those margins are moving, obviously, and the most enlightened grape growers and producers are making every sort of uh, every move they can to keep the marginal qualities of their wine because they know that it's the marginal qualities that, that makes their wine great rather than just good. The most fascinating example, in a way, is is the company of Torres in Catalonia. Miguel Torres is the most switched on follower of these problems, and he is moving his great production in, into cooler spots, which is particularly from the, his region of production is, is not far from Barcelona, uh, and is going north towards the Pyrenees where the, where the land rises and planting and experimenting there. Other people are doing it. They're going, going higher or further north so that their grapes don't get overripe. Has it really become a problem yet? 
No, I don't think it has become a problem. I think everybody basically welcomes riper grapes. Overripe grapes has long been a much bigger problem. I mean, the, the, in California, you know, the dialing back the ripeness, which used to and still does make sort of heavy, sweet, over-alcoholic wine, dialing that back is more important than, than, uh, than increasing it. So that's more a question of good winemaking techniques and, and carefully managing the harvest. Exactly. That's right. Now, Hugh, uh, what about English wine then? Is this an opportunity because of this change? I just would like to touch on that. Absolutely. I touch on it and I drink it all the time. <laughs> no, it's very thrilling for us uh, in, in England to have a proper wine industry of our own and making sparkling wine in particular, which is challenging the world's best. And I say that without any hesitation. So this has happened very recently. I remember when I was a young writer going to visit the, the one vineyard in the whole of the country down near the south coast called Hambledon that, that was producing a, a, a really a drinkable wine. Well, that was 60 years ago. Now our vineyards are multiplying like mad and they're all basically down in the south of the country as you would expect but they're creeping north as well the great quality of english wine is that the grapes as i was talking earlier about the importance of the margins the great wines come from marginal ripeness well we've got marginal ripeness in spades and uh, in a good year we can make a lot of very good wine it keeps the acidity which is the absolutely the foundation of fine wine. I know there's, the word acidity is rather off-putting, but believe me, a wine without it uh, is like, well, let's say a fruit with no acidity. It would be totally boring. You know, what makes an apple a, a crisp, refreshing bite and worth taking a second and a third bite is because it is both sweet and sharp. Sharpness is vital. And that's what we have in, in, in England. We have the, the ability to make wines with a fundamental sharpness in the flavor that makes them refreshing and repeatable. Yes, absolutely. You've made me want to uh, have a glass right now, even though it's only 11 in the morning here. Hugh, you've said your first love is claret. But if you were to have one glass of Italian wine to enjoy, what would it be? Oh, I'm always discovering new Italian wines. Uh, and getting enthused by new things. I mean, I've recently had red wines from from Sicily, which have been enthralling, especially yeah, both from the eastern end where Mount Etna gives them the advantage of, of altitude and other parts of Sicily where they don't, don't have Mount Etna. So, but my one glass of Italian wine, well, I'd be very tempted to have a glass of the delicious uh, fizz that they make in Lombardy. Oh, the Franciacorta. Uh, yes, from Franciacorta. Poor dear me. There's so many totally different styles of Italian wine that you're really asking me what my taste is rather than... Yes. <laughs> it's an unfair question. I know there would be many glasses to have, and I would take great pleasure in sharing one with you. Hugh, it's been a real uh, delight to meet you here, to talk about your life and wines. These new editions of your books, published by Academy Devan Library, are beautifully produced, and they will bring your writing to new audiences, I'm sure. Personally, I'd like to say that you've been, a, you've been a true inspiration to me and my work over many years and decades, and I thank you for that, and I wish you all the best. 
Well, thank you so much for this conversation, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. And I'm now just thinking about my corkscrew and giving it a bit of work. Oh, very good idea. Thank you, Hugh. And I look forward to meeting again sometime. You bet. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin.